the Jewish views on preserving Har Hazetim, or the Mount of Olives. We hear about a new committee who will do just that. Klezfest 2016, the music event is back, but what's in store? We'll find out. And we talk to our friend Laura Marks, who's just been announced as the new chair of Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. London's new mayor has said he's confident the police will be thoroughly investigating the displaying of Hezbollah flags at an Al-Quds Day march in the capital earlier this month. Sadiq Khan spoke as well of the distress caused to the Jewish community as he was questioned about the rally by Conservative London Assembly member Kimi Badenoch. Ms Badenoch said police can use powers granted by the Terrorism Act of 2000 to make arrests whenever these flags are seen. Michael Gove, who was sacked as Justice Secretary by the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, has criticised the National Union of Students as being a chilling environment for Jewish students. Mr Gove, who'd previously been Education Secretary, used his first speech since returning to the backbenches to say he felt it was particularly Jews who'd been affected by individuals within the NUS who hadn't upheld the best traditions of academic freedom. A newly discovered document has apparently revealed that Tehran's ability to build a nuclear bomb could exist before the end of an international deal which was negotiated last year between Iran and six key foreign powers. Some important restrictions, according to the authenticated document, will apparently start to ease years before the 15-year accord expires. Tributes have been paid to Reuben Turner, the man known as a champion of Jewish music, who's died at the age of 92. Reverend Turner, who was awarded an MBE two years ago, founded the Jewish Music Council and was the patron of the London Cantorial Singers. He was born in Germany in 1924 and escaped the Nazis in the early 30s when he came to England. He became a minister and chazan at three London synagogues and was also an author and communal leader. And finally, the Met Office is investigating how it can best serve the strictly orthodox community after thousands of weather inquiries have stretched its resources to breaking point. Among the ideas being mooted are text message forecasts, which would be sent directly to the phones of orthodox users, and an automated forecasting service in English and Yiddish. The Met Office wants thoughts and feedback from the community. That's the news. Here's Andrew with the sport. Thanks, Viv. Hapa El Sheva will have to beat Greek side Olympiakos over two legs if they're to keep alive their hopes of reaching next season's Champions League. The Israeli champions grounded out a goalless draw in Moldova, which was enough to see them beat Sheriff Tiraspol 3-2 on aggregate. Still needing to get through two ties to reach the main draw of next season's competition, the first leg in Athens takes place on Wednesday night. Elsewhere, Israel's Olympic-bound swimmers were outshone at the national championships by a swimmer who wasn't quick enough to qualify for Rio. Karen Sibner won six gold medals at the tournament in Holon. And finally, a Jewish NFL player has become the first to qualify for a US Olympic team after he was named in their rugby sevens team. New England Patriots' Nate Ebner was included in a 12-man squad, where he will be joined by another Jewish player, Zach Test. Remember... You can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look 
at your copy of the Jewish News for this week. Joining me, Phil Dave, in the studio to go through it is news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Warfish. Welcome to you both. Justin, first of all, welcome back from your holiday. Secondly, shall we have a look at the front page, shall we, as we always do? What is on the front cover? Well, we uh, have this week launched a campaign to address the fact that Hezbollah flags uh, are being waved uh, so freely on the streets of London. Uh, While I was away, in fact, we did a front page story under the headline, Al Could They Let This Happen?, where we highlighted the fact that at the annual Al Quds Day parade, this flag, this uh, very distinctive yellow flag, uh, was being waved by protesters marching through the streets of London. No arrests were made, despite the fact that this was a flag of a terrorist group, a recognised terrorist group. We highlighted then the fact that the sticking point here appears to be the fact that whilst the military wing of Hezbollah is a prescribed organisation, the political wing isn't, and they share the same flag, and therefore the police have had difficulties in deciding exactly how to proceed here. We are calling together with the Zionist Federation on the new Prime Minister, the new Home Secretary and the new government to basically crack down here and and make sure that whenever these flags appear on the streets of London, that arrests are made without fail. Also this week on the same story, Sadiq Khan was questioned by two politicians on the London Assembly uh, about this issue and he made clear that he believes that the police are currently investigating what happened uh, earlier this month, that they believe that they're taking this very seriously, they'll investigate very thoroughly and he also acknowledged the distress caused to the Jewish community by the appearance of these flags in London. You see, we did discuss this obviously as you rightly identify in your absence over the last couple of weeks and in particular the one thing that cropped up is how difficult it is to determine whether or not it is flown with malintent, as it were. So it is quite a tricky situation. Just because they share the same flag, do we automatically assume then that there's got to be in and amongst there people who are hiding behind the group in favour of flying it to, say, cause trouble? It's it's a bit tricky, surely. Uh, Hezbollah is a terrorist organisation. Various figures within that organisation have recognised that that it's one organisation. In the petition that we've launched this week on Change.org, we we point out that what happened a couple of weeks ago was a demonstration against Israel, an annual parade that takes place through the streets of London. They weren't expressing solidarity by waving the flag with the endeavours that Hezbollah may or may not undertake within Lebanon. This this was about, about Israel, about Hezbollah's relationship with Israel, which is about terrorism. Well, well, let's see what happens with the backing of London Mayor Sadiq Khan with any luck. Changes will be implemented. Speaking of changes being implemented, there's been a bit of a cabinet reshuffle since we last met. Theresa May obviously is the new prime minister and we have now pretty much learnt who all of her new cabinet are. So has it gone down well with the community? Yeah, well, the key appointment, I guess, as far as the Jewish community is concerned in relation to Israel is that of Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, an appointment that's obviously gained many headlines well beyond the Jewish community. Boris is a figure that he visited Israel just last year. I was able to to travel around with him. His visit was... I have to say, universally welcomed, and he, he was uh, he was welcomed with open arms wherever he went in Israel, particularly as he was very clear in his opposition to boycotts in very colourful language that later made him not exactly welcome in the Palestinian territories and in the West Bank. 
having said that, Boris's record with regards to Israel is not, you know, he's not an unquestioning supporter of the country. Uh, yes, he spent time in the country working on a kibbutz when he was much younger. But when it came to the Gaza conflict in 2014, uh, he was critical. He described Israel's response to rocket attacks as disproportionate. And uh, he was criticised for that at the time. It was a very different position to that taken by David Cameron. But having said all that, Boris's appointment has been welcomed uh, warmly by the Israeli ambassador, Mark Regev. Also uh, appointed to the cabinet uh, is Sajid Javid. Uh, The former business secretary becomes the community secretary and obviously will therefore have a big relationship with the community. He already has a a strong relation uh, with uh, the Holocaust Educational Trust, with Conservative Friends of Israel. And I think that's a very welcome appointment there. Great. Well, here's hoping that the new cabinet will uh, display the positive signs that they initially show in future. Okay, well, I remember when this next news item broke, and I personally find it hard to believe that it's been 10 years ago already. I am, of course, talking about the murder of Alan Sennett. Hard to believe that it's been 10 years already, Fran. Absolutely. I don't know where the time has gone. I had the great honour, I suppose, and privilege of knowing Alan personally during my time at Birmingham University. Even then, you know, as a sort of a coming into his 20-somethings. He showed very great skills as a, a leader, you know, a flourishing politician and just wanting to muck in. He was always great at wanting to be involved in the community and further interests of tackling the you know difficult issues of anti-semitism on campus he was just head and shoulders really above other I guess politically motivated students you could just tell there was something special something different about him and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he would have gone on to be a great leader and would have been very heavily involved in UK politics I'm sure on some kind of level so yes he's been sorely missed over these last 10 years. Well, the community has been marking this, hasn't it, Justin? Tributes have been paid to mark the 10th anniversary. So what has been said? What's happened? Yeah, on Tuesday night at JW3, there was a very moving ceremony attended by Alan's mother, her siblings, and included a video message from Lord Sachs in which he spoke about his various encounters with Alan as leader of the Union of Jewish Students, as leader of BBYO. Uh, and how he would have been one of the great leaders of our time. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. I I think a mark of that is the fact that at this ceremony, 10 years have passed, but his memory has not faded at all. There were more than 200 people, I think, at the ceremony that took place this week. Seven out of the last 10 UJS leaders were there, including two who no longer live in the country. It's hard to imagine someone else having that kind of turnout 10 years after they haven't been with us. Certainly is. Well, testimony, I suppose, to his uh, great legend. Okay, finally, let's end on some happier news, shall we? Steven Spielberg's in town. Why, Fran? <laughs> is, it, is it Spielberg or Spielberg? Because no. I've been getting flack about this all week, actually. I've been saying Spielberg. I think, well, until I'm told otherwise, I think we'll go with Spielberg for now. Because it's a two... Well, Justin hasn't even given his opinion yet. Is it Spielberg or Spielberg? I've never had anything but Spielberg. Two against one. Carry on, Fran. Okay, well, <laughs> Spielberg, Spielberg. Let's call the whole thing off. Anyway, the great master himself, I think he's a bit of a film genius, was in town last weekend to promote his new film, The BFG... 
film adaptation of Roald Dahl's popular children's story, which I myself read when I was a little seven or eight-year-old. And it's also the first time in his 40-year career so far that he's worked with Disney. So it's the coming together of two giants, really, Dahl and Spielberg, to talk about, you know, essentially giants. I see what you did there, Yeah, I know. Well done. Thank you. I've, I've seen the film. It's really wonderful. And it employs a clever blend of live action and performance capture technology. I wouldn't recommend it for very young children, but I think children 10 years and older will really love it. And it's got farting dogs in it. And who doesn't like farting dogs? Mm, well, quite. Don't really know how to follow on from that. Thank you both very much indeed. In fact, I do know exactly how. That's all we've got time for, for a look at the paper for this week. So thank you very much to news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Wolfish. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. And also, if you want to get involved and tell us whether or not you think that the answer is Spielberg or Spielberg, do help us try and decide the debate. Studio at jewishviews.co.uk if you would like to put us in our place. Now, over the years, Har Hadzatim, or the Mount of Olives, like so many other cemeteries, has been the subject to much in the way of vandalism and even neglect. Well, a new UK-based committee has been formed to try and help restore and preserve the oldest and holiest of Jewish cemeteries. Philip Sleepercheck is part of that new committee, and I've been speaking to him to find out more. I started by asking him to remind us why the Mount of Olives is such an important site. The Mount of Olives is probably, or not probably, is the most renowned, famous and holy cemetery in the whole world. Its history goes back 3,000 years and it's mentioned in, in the Tanakh. And not only that, whilst the great and the good of the Jewish community are buried there, but more importantly, and it's something that's often missed, is it's also the resting place of many other denominations. And here in the UK, there are members of the royal family buried there. Prince Philip's mother, Princess Alice, is actually buried there and he's been there to actually pay his respects to his late mother. So it's it's not just, as I sometimes say, things aren't what they initially appear to be. There's always something deeper. Well, there certainly is as far as Mount of Olives is concerned because I've been doing a, a small bit of research into the history of it just for the sake of this interview. And I don't know whether or not I should be ashamed to say that I wasn't aware of its vast history and what is behind it. Perhaps you could just explain where your interest comes in, though, because there might be some listening who say, well, why do you have an interest in it? I think, as you appreciate, I've been involved in community issues within the Jewish community for over a decade. Outside of my day job, I do a lot of pro bono work, which I'm the media officer for the Institute of Polish Jewish Studies. I'm also now a patron of the country's leading interfaith charity, Faith Matters, and I was asked to become a trustee of the UK Committee for the Preservation of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Now, I was dragged into this by some of my Hasidic friends in Golders Green and Stamford Hill, who said, oh, Philip, perhaps you could help uh, renovate a cemetery, because I know what you've done in Poland with mikvahs, etc., etc. I said, OK, fine, what is it? Oh, Mount of Olives. 
Okay, fine. Tell me more. <laughs> and within about two days, I was sitting in somebody's front room in Golders Green, listening to them. But anyhow, you're going to ask me a little bit more, so I'll wait for the next question. Well, tell us a little bit more, why don't you? What exactly is this committee set up to achieve? Because obviously, we know that it's designed for, in terms of the preservation of the site, and also maybe even some restoration work as okay. well. But what will it actually involve? Okay. Initially, the site was had been desecrated, vandalised under the Jordanian occupation, and sadly, following the Intifada, there were situations where gravestones were removed, debased. There was examples of you know donkey excrement on them, football played there. Now, at the end of the day, whatever one's views on Israel-Palestine, okay, I'm a Staunton Zionist, but the most important thing is we're talking about a resting place for the dead. It's respect for the dead. And, you know, it's not a political, it's not a religious thing. It's just, remember, it's probably the most important mitzvah to do because the mitzvah of helping the dead is one that they can't do themselves. It certainly is. And you've proved yourself above and beyond that by taking on this. Now, it was relatively, I suppose, if one could say, exciting, really, the launch of this committee, because it took place, I was very flattered to be asked, regrettably, this is the sacrifice I make for the Jewish views, I couldn't attend. But it took place at the House of Commons. Could you tell us a little bit okay. about that? When I was approached to to be a part of the committee, um, the onus came from the United States. They've already got a committee there, and the views there amongst American jury is, why aren't the British jury and the European jury pulling their finger out? So, OK, fine. Set me up a challenge. We'll do. We'll have an event in the House of Commons. But one thing I wanted to do more than anything, I didn't want it to be a, a, a let's say, an ultra orthodox talking shop. So I said, fine, I'm going to get involved in one condition that we. Do, I'm not going to sit around in Stanford Hill or Golders Green and watch you twirling a pass and shouting, "Everybody hates us and we don't care," like Millwall football supporters. So <laughs> with, with that said, I, I said to him, "Look, you've got to get the goyim, the nations involved, because." And I approached my own member of parliament, Theresa Villiers, who was then the Northern Ireland secretary. She kindly agreed to be a patron. Matthew Offord, I've done quite a lot of work with, especially with, in, with the Jewish community and also my own community, the Polish community. And he jumped at the, uh, the opportunity and agreed to have a reception in the House of Commons, which took place last Thursday. And Matthew Offord is MP for Hendon, isn't he? Is, he's, he's the MP for Hendon, a great friend of the Jewish community. He kindly hosted the event. And we had there, we, we had a letter re uh, read out do you want me to elaborate on who was there? And Well, go on. I tell you what, why not? Give us a flavour of what it was like. For those of us who obviously weren't there, which is probably the majority of those listening, give us an insight of what um, it's like in the House of Commons. Yeah, the, this is the second one. This is the second event I did. I did one for the Polish community, for Polish business, on the 4th of February in Committee Room 14. This is where the 1922 committee meet and where the new prime minister was initially proposed and ennobled, if I could use that term. Very large room. It's got a panel that you, as many as 10 people can sit. And we had over 150 guests. Wow. Not only the most pleasing point was there were people of every colour, creed, which is fantastic. So on the panel... The panel consisted of my good friend Stephen Pack, the president of United Synagogue, who is very good to me because I often ha have Shabbos lunch with him. We had Diane Abrahams. There was also Councillor Simka Steinberger from Stamford Hill. 
uh, on the panel. We had the Menachem Lubinsky from New York, who's got family buried there. We had, I'm just making sure that I've got the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem. So all very small players yeah, and, no, but and it's really, gets even better. It really gets, insignificant people. No, it gets even better. It gets even better. That was um, a joke, of course. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it gets even better. My good friend Kaz Aston from the Rotary Club of London, who I approached, uh, got the royal family involved. Wow. So on the panel, we had Princess Katerina of Yugoslavia, who is a cousin of Prince Charles, and I believe it's her great-grandmother is Prince Alice. And is buried there. Princess Alice, yeah. Princess Alice. And she's also a direct descendant of Queen Victoria on both sides. We've actually extended an invitation for her to join the committee. Goodness me. Well, this sounds like it's got the most extraordinary strength behind it. So here's hoping it can only do wonders. What is the committee's hopes? Because now that it's launched, it's official, you're out there. And obviously, you say that there are existing committees around the world who already do great stuff for the Mount of Olives. So what is the hope now that the UK division can chip in and contribute? Right. The first thing is, obviously, once it's up and running, funding will be needed. Okay, But the point of the exercise is to draw people's attention to what's happening. The other point is that... It's in, I'd hate to use the term occupied territory, but it was the territory that was won back by the Jewish state in 1967. It is politically sensitive, so I thought it was absolutely imperative that I had uh, representation from the Israeli government. Whilst the Ambassador Rogreff couldn't turn up on this, he sent a spokesman and read out a message. But more importantly is the fact that I have two members of British Parliament that are patrons. Can you imagine that the next time there is some a desecration, there is a vandalism, whatever, rather than it coming from a Jewish source and the world saying, oh, here it is, the Jews at it again, moaning, moaning, moaning. I get the Goyim to do it. <laughs> Isn't it marvellous? <laughs> Members of Parliament, you know, and they jumped at the opportunity. And the very fact that we had a letter read out by Kaz Aston from Rotary, from Prince Charles, wishing us every success and sorry he couldn't be there, It's very important that it extends beyond the Jewish community. It involves everybody. How hands-on will you be in this? Will you actually get the chance to visit the site? Yeah, obviously, at the moment, look, I, I... I, I often regard myself as being a facilitator. I enjoy bringing people together. And I have a very cosmopolitan background, Irish mother, Polish father. And when I was 17, I think you, I've said this before on radio, the news was broken to me that my mother was, uh, was Irish. Now, having been brought up in Winchester, Hampshire in the 60s, it wasn't very pleasant. It was usually you. And I think then, we can use our imagination on that front, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And air rifle shot at bricks. So, you know, I always like looking after the, the oppressed and representing people who've had a hard deal in life. So obviously, you know, <laughs> here I am looking after the Eden. Well, naturally, we wish you all the best of luck with it. And if anyone in the community hasn't already said it, which they blooming well should have done, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure because one thing I love about the Jewish community, there is never a shortage of the word thank you, which is, you know, something I love about the community. Everybody celebrates everybody's success. Philip Sleepercheck, part of the new UK committee that's been formed to help restore and preserve Har HaTzaitzim, or the Mount of Olives, the oldest and holiest Jewish cemetery. For more information, then go to www.harhazaitzim.org. That is spelt 
H-A-R-H-A-Z-E-I-S-I-M. H-A-R-H-A-Z-E-I-S-I-M. Hahazesim.org. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs and founder of the homeopathic helpline, David Needleman. They'll be discussing segregation of the Haredi community. You may be interested to know that you can now join along with the schmooze as we record it. For the last few weeks, we have streamed live on our Facebook page the recording of the discussion, and you can now watch it as it unfolds. And more importantly, you can join in with the conversations. It's just another way that you can always share your Jewish views with us, and we would love it if you did that. We transmit that every Thursday evening at 7pm. Also still to come on this edition of The Jewish Views, Diana Toman will be speaking to founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, about her latest role as the newly appointed chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. Now, if you're a fan of klezmer music, then you'll be delighted to learn that Klezfest 2016 is nearly upon us. It runs from 15th to the 19th of August, and to find out exactly who features in it and how you can experience it, entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Jen Jankel from the Jewish Music Institute. She started by asking Jen to tell us how she would define klezmer music. The first thing one thinks about with klezmer is uh, wedding music. We have recordings that go back a very long time into the last century. And it has, as our artistic director Sophie Solomon would say, cherry-picked out of different countries, Transylvania music, Balkan music, so that you get a whole world of sounds, but coming from the same global heart. And it's really attractive to more and more people. A lot of people who've studied classical music are not actually drawn to performance or belonging to orchestras and actually want to get involved in playing klezmer. And the leaders of our faculty at Klezfest will give you a wonderful explanation on their instruments. We'll come on to Klezfest. We will come on to talking about Klezfest okay. because that's... Why has klezmer music become so popular within particular Jewish community? Why? What is it something that we embrace about it? I think it touches memories that we don't have in ourselves, but go back through our souls and like a our genetic parents. Mem- music memory. <laughs> I think so. I think it lifts people in times of extreme poverty. Dancing at a wedding when you can hardly afford to put anything together and celebrating celebratory music. Although I've heard it played most beautifully in much more sombre, sort of minor keys. No, not so much the tonal keys, but at occasions that are more sombre, as you say. Yes. It, it does feel familiar, like you say. It does have that sort of, that has a, a sort of a warm yes, feeling. Yes, I think, I think in the Jewish community we grew up, well, we've got, we're talking about clarinet, we're talking about accordion, 
talking about violin. You couldn't carry a piano around with you. That's not an instrument that comes with it. Percussion sometimes. If you look at other groups of art instrumentalists, you've got, for example, Frank London, who is outstanding and is part of or a key part of the Klezmatics, the only Grammy Award winning group. Yes. of uh, klezmer players in the world, and he's a trumpeter. Oh, so so they're all transportable instruments. Absolutely. You can pop them under your arm. Because we are uh, people on the move. So turning to the, the klezmer Festival, what is it? Who goes? Tell us a bit about it. Interestingly, we at JMI, we relaunched... That's the Jewish Music Institute. Yeah, Jewish Music Institute. We relaunched Klezfest last year. It had taken place before and there was a general demand from many of the young musicians who learned with the early JMI or perhaps were winners of the Millennium Awards that were given out at that time and now are our faculty leaders. And there was a great request that we brought this back. I mean, there are wonderful Klezmer festivals like Klezfest Canada, Klez Canada, and so we decided to finish our Otazoi week. Otazoi is our language course directed by Helen Beer, who is an outstanding teacher, and uh, Golden Pava, which is directed by Shura Lepofsky, and said, OK, why don't we have a second week and we'll bring back Klezfest. We didn't know how many people would be attractive. And last year, I think we had over 65 people for the first year. Wow. We were absolutely And what is delighted. this exactly? Is it a, is it a, a music festival in the in the open, or is it a, a teaching? No, or it's is teaching. It a... It's teaching and performing. There are concerts at the end of the course by the people who take part and by the faculty, and you have to be sort of grade five upwards to come with your instruments. And in many uh, on many occasions, we get whole bands. I think we've got several bands who are actually coming. Very experienced musicians who we've got, I can think of several who are already at music college, either doing MA or even PhD students who come and join us because the faculty is of such a high level. So we're really excited and we're letting it grow exponentially, really. Where uh, is and the organically. school? It actually takes place at SOAS during the summer because... JMI has its office at SOAS on the fifth floor amongst the other music offices and they're very supportive. The whole, the management at SOAS and the directorship are very supportive of what we do. So, we so they're mainly go adults, to, young adults, college students. Yes. We're not talking about sort of grade five kids no. drunk, dragging no. their trumpets. Funnily enough, that's people. something that maybe we'll dream about in the future, yeah, but, but we're not But this is a solid yet. adult performance. Yeah. yeah. And if anybody wants some more information, how do they go about finding it? www.jmi.org.uk And we are thrilled to take applications for Klezfest. The doors are open right until the week before we actually commence the course. And you are taking people who, you said, grade five standard and any particular instruments that you... No, I don't think that we're worried about instruments. I've even seen a tuba coming to one of our master classes. There are lots of violins. There are lots of accordion players. Actually, at JMI, we have a different 
course, nothing to do with Klesfest, where we're teaching children to play accordion. But that's another story for another time. And you have to put you putting concerts on at the end. Yes, for for anybody people who want to come, we open the doors. Where and would that be? The concert last year was took place at the Jewish Museum, and that was very successful. Is um. Klezmer music usually just music or is it often set to words or the songs? People do accompany Klezmer music, but it's normally instrumental. It's normally instrumental. You know, the melodies, the ornamentation, it's very often accompanied by dance. Dance right. is very important. And again, and we're back to the celebratory. Absolutely. And if you came to, if you come to Klesmer in the Park this year, you'll hear our Klesmer music and you'll also see have our a dance to leaders dance. and have Excellent. a chance to dance. Thank you. Well, on that very high note, we'll have to leave it. Thank you very much. Jen Jankel from the Jewish Music Institute talking to Kate Folsom there. If you'd like more information, then you can always go to the JMI website, which is jmi.org.uk. jmi.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, Holocaust Memorial Day may have been and gone for 2016 or 5776, but the HMD Trust is always working throughout the year to promote and support the day itself. And they've just appointed a new chair. And I'm delighted to say that she's no stranger to us. It is, of course, founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Laura to find out about her new position. Now, Laura very kindly took time out from her very busy schedule and spoke to us down the line. I'd like to point out that for those of you with very keen ears, then you may detect a rather unusual squeaking sound in some parts of this interview. I'd like to reassure you that neither Diana nor Laura suffer from a lack of Omega-3, but in fact, Laura's lovely dog Basil was so jealous of his mother's place in the spotlight that he decided to use a very noisy toy to inform us that he still exists. Apologies for that. Diana started by asking Laura, though, all the same, to give us a bit of background into Holocaust Memorial Day. Holocaust Memorial Day was set up by the government in the year 2000, but in 2005 they set up an independent charity, which is the Trust, to run Holocaust Memorial Day for them. Um, it's not the sort of thing that government does itself, so they set up the charity to do it. Right. And then that was in 2005, and and Kathy took over as chair six years ago. And you set up Mitzvah Day in 2005. Do you feel that you'll be less hands-on in this new role than you were with Mitzvah Day? Well, Holocaust Memorial Day is an up-and-running, established charity now. My job's completely different because on Mitzvah Day I was the founder, so obviously I have always been much more hands-on. But my role on Holocaust Memorial Day will be very much the chair of trustees. We have a fantastic chief executive, Olivia Marks-Wallman, who runs it with the staff. And the job of the chair, my job will be to oversee things, to make sure that our mission becomes is, is delivered and that it stays relevant and that it moves with the times and that we have a strong board to help ensure that the staff can deliver our mission. 
Tell me a little bit about the vice chair, Dilwar Hussein, who I'm assuming is a Muslim. Yes, Dilwar is a Muslim. He's a fantastic man based in Leicester. He runs an organization called New Horizons. He was also very involved in the Islamic Society of Britain. And the thing about Holocaust Memorial Day to remember that's really important is that it was set up to commemorate the Holocaust and the other victims of the Nazis, which are people who were gay, people who were, had disabilities, and um, the Roma community, shouldn't forget that at all. Um, and it was also set up to commemorate the subsequent genocides. So there were four subsequent genocides in Rwanda, Cambodia, Darfur, and Bosnia. So the remit of Holocaust Memorial Day is much broader than the Holocaust. It's looking at genocide, the causes of genocide, and most importantly, how to ensure that these things don't happen again, which, of course, sadly, they do. Indeed. So the board is made up not just of Jewish people, but of people from all sorts of faiths and backgrounds, because the issues that we're talking about affect all of us. Now, of course, actually, Holocaust affects all of us, too, because... The Holocaust wasn't, it wasn't Jews who led to the, uh, to the Holocaust, it was, it was society at large. In the same way as the Holocaust is something that all of us need to think about, so do subsequent genocides. So the fact that we've got a very mixed board is really important. And Dilwa is fantastic. And he will bring a completely different dimension for me. And I'm really delighted to be working with him. Do you have any other people on the board who are of different religions, apart from Dilwa and yourself? We have another Muslim, Fayaz Mughal, and we have a lot of people who I wouldn't know what their religion was. It's not relevant. You know, it's not the first question we would ask people, what's your religion? We have, obviously, we've got Jewish people on, on the board and we've got Muslim people. We've got people of all faiths and, and backgrounds. And, and actually, for me, it's not particularly relevant. What's relevant is that we've got a, a range of wonderful people with complementary skills. Do you see yourself instituting any new initiatives once you take over as chair? Well, there's some things that have changed over the last 10 years, particularly the introduction of the foundation. And the foundation was the Commission on Holocaust, which was set up by the Prime Minister two years ago. And then they reported just over a year ago after a large consultation. And so they weren't around. They didn't exist a few years ago. So the whole sort of landscape changed in terms of the organizations involved in Holocaust commemoration and genocide commemoration. So that's one thing that will have changed. And another thing will change is the political climate. So at the moment, particularly post-Brexit, whilst it's too early to say whether it's due to Brexit, and it's, it's hard to know that yet, but there is a sense that post-Brexit, a lot of anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, general racial hatred has been released out into the ether. And one of the things that we, along with other organizations, of course, are really going to have to think about is what to do if we're now faced with a community where hatred is more prevalent or, or certainly more seen than maybe it was in the past. So there's a, there's a political climate change that we've really got to think about. Right. And you're hoping that your new post will initiate that with any luck? And a lot of hard work, I suspect. 
Well, I don't really think that, uh, I don't see things in terms of me versus the rest of the world. I see things in terms of teamwork. We've got uh, 14 wonderful trustees. We've got a staff of 11. This is a collective effort, as are all of these things that involve community cohesion. The other thing to tell you is that last year, well, this year, January, on Holocaust Memorial Day, we ran five and a half thousand local events. That's amazing. So, and that's that's a very, very upward note to end this very, interview. Thank very you. upward, yes. Thank you very much, Laura. That's Thank given you. us hope for the future. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. The lovely Laura Marks speaking to the equally lovely Diana Toman there about her new position as the chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. And let's not forget as well that Basil the Dog featured in that as well, squeaking away in the background. We do apologise again about that. But as I say, Laura is an exceptionally busy lady who very kindly agreed to speak to us from home via a link. So Basil obviously didn't want to get left behind. For more information, you can always go to their website, which is hmd.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, we will have our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. Don't forget, we always want to hear from you. So if you would like to share your Jewish views with us, then you can always email us studio at jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are founder of the homeopathic helpline, David Needleman, and the voice, that is Jeremy Jacobs. The subject is based on an item we heard in the news with Viv a little earlier on. At first, you might be forgiven for thinking that it was mildly amusing to hear that members of the Haredi community overwhelmed the helpline at the meteorological office, or Met Office as we know it. But does this highlight just how segregated the Haredim can be, and should we be worried on their behalf? David, shall we start with you? Do you think the Haredi community should be doing more to integrate with other members of society, or should we be more understanding towards traditions that have been the case for many hundreds of years? I'm actually in two minds about that. First, I believe that everybody has the right not to watch television or listen to radio or read newspapers. And their tradition is that they don't contaminate their minds with the stuff we see on television, hear on the radio or read in the newspapers. They have their own newspaper. They don't have television. Yes, they do have mobile phones and they do text. So in that respect, I would protect their right to, if you like, distance themselves from our modern society. However, when it comes to finding out about what's going on in the world, finding out about the weather or even about atrocities around the world, they are rather, well, what's the word really? I suppose anaesthetized from it. And that could be dangerous. It's um, absolutely ridiculous, though, that they should make the Met Office melt down, as it were. It's either they don't, they're not interested in what the weather is like, or they are. But if they want to know what the weather is like, then surely they should go somewhere to find out without phoning up the Met Office. Why? Because it's there on newspapers, and they do read newspapers. We know that they, they read specific newspapers, and um, they don't read 
newspapers that are in the mainstream because of the inappropriate images to their beliefs. So the only newspapers they'll read are obviously the more Haredi newspapers. They won't even read the Jewish Chronicle or the Jewish News, many of them. Well, maybe the Haredi News tells what the weather's going to be like. Very possibly, but on a day-to-day basis, a weekly newspaper isn't going to give you that information. I personally don't have a problem with this. And that's their their system of beliefs. If if they feel that that is the best and most accurate way of perhaps protecting their children from sun and from being burnt and, and skin cancer and all the other issues that we all have about these things, then why not? So you also approve of the fact that at some of the Haredi schools, children don't learn anything at all except Hebrew and and the stories of the Bible and perhaps Yiddish, I suppose. That's another subject altogether. It's the same thing. It's it not because exactly I have the I have thing. no, I have very different views on that because that's not effect, that that is affecting the progression of a child's future. Phoning up the Met Office to find out the weather is quite a responsible thing to do, in my opinion. What do you think, Jeremy? Well. I did hear that the Met Office telephone system went into meltdown. Was that, is that that's claimed? absolutely true? Because well, it was in so that hot. Case, in that, that's not even funny. <laughs> it's not, um, it? That actually is is grossly, as far as I'm concerned, grossly responsible. You know, I mean, what gives the right of one section of society, a tiny minority of our society? But we all Sorry. need weather temperature warnings. It, it, it's well, otherwise, what's the point in having news and newscasts and weather reports? I mean, you don't need to integrate to ask a non-Jewish person in Stamford Hill what the weather's going to be like. I mean, it's, it's just absurd. I, you know, I've just got no time for this. You know, and you, really can pick up, you can pick up a newspaper and just God read forbid. the weather forecast in the newspaper. You don't you have excuse to. Excuse We pun. can. Yeah, we can because we read English and also we are happy to see images which we are immune to because we're used to it, whereas mm. that community is very insular and very isolated in respect of bringing up their children mm. and the images that they are prepared to allow them to see. Even those that may have a computer, and that is very rare, will bar many, many things on it. They will only be able to get certain things on it. They'll be able to use it for work. They'll be able to use it for study. But they won't be able to use it to look at Will you any other websites. Will you explain to why it is that Herodia allow people to drive motor cars? <laughs> why they allow people to drive cars? Yes. Why do they go out into the streets and shop in modern shops? Yeah. Presumably because they have to get around like everyone else and they also have to eat like everyone else. And they also like... That's your basic functions in life. Well, all right. In that case, why is phoning up the Met Office the basic thing in life? Because look at their their system of beliefs. They do not want to be exposed to what they would see, and and they've got every right to believe this, what they would see as inappropriate images. Now, inappropriate images are flooding Western society and have done for many years. I understand why they went. I have five daughters. I'm very concerned about the imagery that they are being exposed to. It's a real concern. I sometimes think maybe I should probably be more Haredi with my outlook because I don't want them to think that this sexualization of young women is appropriate. Now, the Haredim cut that out altogether. I think that's pretty responsible to have that attitude. You use the word flooding, and I'm not making a pun, but in fact, if there were sudden rains and there were flooding in the Haredi community, they couldn't phone up the Met Office. they probably find themselves swimming around trying to get away from the floods. All right, but let's say the floods are five miles away. 
and the Haredim want to know if the floods are heading in their direction or not. I think they've got every right to find that out. And if they're not going to use the internet or use the TV, radio or secular newspapers, mm. then that is their only way of finding that well, information. Well, it should be published on their own. There's, there's something very wrong with society. There must be enough people. OK, let's just take... I was happened to be driving through Stafford Hill last weekend. I won't say which day, in case I offend someone. But it was Saturday. <laughs> Can't imagine. And on the way back from football. You know, and my friend, who's not Jewish in the car, said, why do they wear... It wasn't particularly... It was quite warm on Saturday. So why do these people wear... I said, that's the way they are. And that's their beliefs. Yeah. Fine. They, I had to explain... And you know, and I, and I just you sort of give up after a while. That is it, actually a very good question because, mm. as I'm sure you probably know, yeah. the, m- most of the clothes they wear are the clothes that used to be worn by people in. It was the aristocracy, the Polish nobility, in yeah. Polish yeah. nobility, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I mean, that's almost. I mean, just one. I mean, that I don't get so much either. It's well, that's your tradition. That's your tradition. That's not anything to do with wanting a better world. What would we be saying if we were talking about the Amish community in America? Good point. I just thought about that. The Amish community are similar. Yes, exactly. But they don't, I don't think they would use a telephone to phone up the Met Office. So they're even more insular and isolated. Yes, I'm not saying that the the Haredi are the only insular people in in, in the world. Would we deny them the ability to be that insular and that isolated? Yes, because to to melt down the Met Office telephone... Well, that's surely the Met Office's problem, that they don't have equipment which is capable Uh, of of doing the job. And by us discussing it in the way we are, are we not showing the kind of intolerance towards them that we accuse them of having towards us? Can I I just throw something else in? in, Okay, uh, about a month ago, there was a group of uh, Haredi children got lost by Dover in St Margaret's Bay, not a million miles away from where I was brought up. I mean, they ignored sign after sign, apparently, sign after sign after sign. Don't go here, it's dangerous. Now, whether it was just one particular group or whether it was an, there was an issue there, but it, to me, it's a, it's a similar sort of thing. Well, you there can't are commonalities say that, here. Really, because right. two weeks later, there was another group of children that weren't Haredi Jews that also got trapped there. Yeah, sure. It was okay. just a story because it was Haredi but Jews. But they did, yes, okay, fine. But I, just, I was just thinking. Everyone that, makes poor decisions sure. from time to time. But so. there are all sorts of ways in which. Haredi, they have every right to have their religion the way they have it, but there are all sorts of ways in which they can get themselves into terrible trouble through their, Mm. if I'm sorry to use this word, but through their intolerance. I mean, things like... Or ignorance. Or ignorance, yes. Is it intolerance, is it ignorance, or is it just a desire to live a biblical-style life? Yeah, is it ignorance or is it innocence? But they're happy, they're happy to use modern medicine. Yes, and, they're happy to use, and they're happy to use some of the other... Of course. <laughs> so some That's of the other trappings of modern society. Because they, that fits in with the Judaism according to the Torah. Of course we choose life. Oh, the Torah says that you can go out and buy an expensive car if you make a lot of the money. The Torah says we choose life. Hmm. And by doing that, that is to make the world a better place. I'm not defending the Haredi attitude towards they live their lives on every count. In the same way, I wouldn't do that for any particular race, nation, whoever. But on this count, I don't see the problem. They are trying to bring up their children in the best way that they can, how they see it. Outside of our belief system, fine, but that's how they see it. And to be phoning the Met Office, because I just don't see what the problem is here. Isn't it a bit odd to use a telephone? 
I can't really comment on that because a lot of them are my my, my patients and they phone me. It's well, very simple. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, what, what I don't understand, if it, surely, rather than phoning en masse, why didn't a few of them phone up and then sort of distribute the news? Would have made more oh, sense. Come on. You, you live in a, a, a road. Yeah. Would you ask your neighbour to phone the Met Office and get the information, then pass it round to your neighbours? There might be a, co- a community leader. Oh, yeah. yeah. But again, who are we to judge? Uh, are, we, are we judging? I, rem- I remember reading in, I think it was either the Tribune or Hamadir, and it was a big article by a Rebbe of a sect. I can't remember which one. It was one of the East European-sounding sects, and he was the Rebbe, and there was the discussion about whether Haredim should use the internet. Now, clearly we know that, in general, they're not allowed to use it. But he was making the point that it's not the technology that's the problem. It's the human. Sure. He said, on the, with one click of a button, you have the lowest depravity you could possibly imagine on the internet. On a click of another button, you have the wisdom of the Torah. But, you choose which button you press. But they really wouldn't know that there is the, the bad side of it. But I'm sure they, they would. Do. I'm sure they know what words <laughs> to type into Google oh, or anything. How would they know? How would they know? Because they know how to spell words that they could type yeah, into like, an address bar or into yeah. a search engine. But why I mean, would they want to put those words down? Why would anyone? Curiosity, curiosity desire, yes, un- lack all of control. the things you've been arguing about the Met Office business <laughs> it fits this as well. Actually, sure. I'd like to know how they got the phone number of the Met Office. Exactly. exactly. Uh-huh. And how they got through. That's another point. Yeah, they looked it up <laughs> online. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, we, we've, we've all lived in, in an era where there was I no see, internet. I think, I think, I think, it's a, I think there's a business opportunity, actually. You know. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. But there, there, there's here at Jewish, weather line. We're recording in the studios here at Jewish Care. We have it in the building here a kosher internet cafe where Haredim can come in and use the internet safely, where there are apps designed in Israel and designed by Haredi communities that will filter even the images that you see on certain websites, the content, the images. So, But a moment ago you said, you said that the Haredi children can't go to a computer because you don't know what they might pick up. You've not just said there are special places. There are special places. Not everyone chooses to use them. Some people just see it as a blanket rule. No, we're not going to take that risk even because but something could slip through. Haredi even, wouldn't, even that would now. they? Some do, some don't. It's all different levels of Haredim in the same way they're all levels of Judaism. I'm surprised. They live their lives as best as they see fit in the same way that we do. Their morals, ethics are probably rather similar to ours, but they probably have more extreme views. I don't want my children seeing pornography. It's totally inappropriate. Now, they take that even further to the level of they don't even want their children to see a woman with her arms uncovered because that to them is pornography. Who am I to say that I'm right and they're wrong? That's how they want to bring their children up. This is how I want to bring my children up. That's fair enough. But we can't say that they've done something wrong because they've decided to use a phone instead of internet, radio, TV. But you can hear terrible things on the phone as well. Well, it depends what you say. <laughs> well, not so. <laughs> if you don't Apparently. have a smartphone, you can't surf. You can only call the person you want to speak to. Yeah. Now, that's a very interesting question. 
How many already have smartphones? I bet Lots. you a lot of them do. There's actually, uh, there's a, certainly in Israel, a lot of the Haredim will say, because of business and because of Parnassah, people need to make a living, some do have to use a specific type of phone. But that's where these apps come into play. And there's also, there's been a kind of a trade-off in Israel as well with the Haredim, where it's been said that, you can use your smartphones and they've kind of leveled it down. You won't now be shunned from the community, but we will stop you from doing, you won't be allowed to do certain things like read from the Torah. So th there's a kind of a penalty to pay and people make their own decisions based on that. Well, we'll leave you with the, with the last word. Fascinating. My thanks to our guests, founder of the homeopathic helpline, David Needleman, and the voice, that is Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. I remember during the height of the Gaza war in 2012, I was asked to speak in my old school haberdashers to both Jewish and non-Jewish students. And I spoke to them about the reality that in the UK, I could drive freely into haberdashers, a non-Jewish school. But to get into a Jewish school, there would be guards and gates. The message was that a hatred for Israel can easily become a hatred for Jews and the need to protect ourselves as a Jewish community. See, back in those days, terror attacks were the Jewish people's problem. Fast forward four years, and unfortunately, it is now a global problem. We're all reeling from the terror attack last week in Nice, and even more recently in Germany. And coming after Paris, Brussels, San Bernardino and Orlando, we unfortunately see that the enemy of radical Islam is no longer just the Jews in Israel, it is the West. Michael Gove is somebody who's been in the news recently. And he is a true friend of Israel and the Jewish community. And in 2011, he said the following thing to the rabbis at the Chief Rabbis Conference. The battle is against those who have succumbed to a dark and twisted version of Islam and have in their sight Israel today and the rest of the world tomorrow. And unless we recognize that Israel is the front line in the battle for Western civilization, the of Western civilization is in peril. He added... In that sense, the Jewish nation is like a canary in the mine. And for all those who are not Jewish, he said, it is known that an increase in anti-Semitism, an increase in hate speech against Israel, is an alarm bell ringing so loud and so clear, it's our duty to listen. How prophetic he was. The world didn't listen to those alarm bells. And yet, despite his sobering message, he finished his words to us with a call to be what we've always tried to be, and commanded to be, despite the world, and all goyim, a light to the nations. He finished by saying, Bear witness to the values that have guided your life. Bear witness to your faith, and in doing so you will shine a light that will never be extinguished, but which the rest of the world will lead a better life. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK for our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Philip Sleepercheck, Jen Jankel, Laura Marks, David Needleman and Jeremy Jacobs, who were on the schmooze. And of course, you at home for listening. 
And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.